Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and host Tiffany Patton, co-presented with Real Food Media. Good morning. I am Kira Epstein, the coordinator of the new school at Commonweal. Today, I'm so pleased to welcome our host, Real Food Media's Tiffany Patton, in conversation with Kristen Leach and Jessica Greendeer. Today's conversation is the second in a three-part series we're calling Roots of Resilience in an Age of Crisis, where we're exploring the interconnectedness of land, seed, and water with a lens on resilience. Thank you all for being with us today, and thanks for being with us at this event series. Today, we're with Kristen, Jessica, and Tiffany to explore the role of seed saving in preserving culture and building resilience. We hope you can join us in the last conversation in this series, which is going to be held Friday, June 18th. It's with Tom Philpot, Janaki Jagannath, and Anna LePay. It's called Thirsty California, Water, Agribusiness, and the Future of Food. If you missed the first conversation in this series, Stolen Land, The Struggle for Rematriation, that we held last month, you can listen or watch on our website and on all of our media outlets. It's been a real pleasure to work with our co-presenters at Real Food Media on this series. Thank you to Anna LaPay and to Tiffany for working with us, and thank you for all the work you're doing to bring awareness to our food systems. We are recording this conversation, and we'll have it produced Uh, with audio and video files on our website. You can also find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Ken Adams is behind the scene, as always, helping us with production, so thank you. Now we're ready to begin. Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and Tiffany Patton, welcome to the New School at Commonweal. Thank you so much, Um, Kira. It's a pleasure to work with you in the New School at Commonweal. Um, And thank you to the attendees for attending. Uh, As Kira mentioned, I'm Tiffany Patton, and I'm speaking to you from my home on Occupied Ohlone land uh, in Oakland, California. I am a co-director at Real Food Media, where we work with movement partners on communication strategy and public education, or events like this, to bring justice and sustainability into the core of our food systems. I'm really excited to be here today with the wonderful Kristen Leach and Jessica Greendeer. Um, If you're not already in love with them, then you will be by the end of this conversation. Uh, This webinar will start with about an hour of facilitated conversation between myself, Kristen, and Jessica, and then we'll spend the last half hour going through the audience Q&A. We love to see an active chat box, so please keep that going as we talk. Today, we're going to be talking about seeds the practice of saving them, their role, and the seed saver role, the seed saver's role as culture keepers, and why this practice is so vital for our ability to withstand crises. Jessica Greendeer is a Ho-Chunk Nation tribal member and a member of the Deer Clan. Uh, She's currently the seed keeper and farm manager at Dream of Wild Health in Minnesota. Um, Jessica has worked as the agricultural division manager for her nation and had previously served as a garden mentor within her nation's organic community gardens. She is also a U.S. Army combat veteran and completed a veteran-to-farmer training program at the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania. And Jessica is joining us now from her she shed, where ducklings and baby chicks are living until they can go out and join their flocks. Kristen Leach uh, grows Asian crops in California's Central Valley. Her focus is on preserving and adapting Korean plants, economic wisdom, and culture. 
She partners with the Ndamu Restaurant Group, providing their restaurants with produce and working with their chefs and cooks on breeding projects. She founded a seed line within Kitazawa Seed Company, the oldest purveyor of Asian vegetable seeds in the U.S., and her seed line is called Second Generation Seeds. Second Generation Seeds is a collaborative project that hopes to connect or reconnect communities of the Asian diaspora with the crops that have sustained them. Um, so thank you, both of you, for joining us. I know it's a busy time, and it's always busy for farmers. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. Um, so I'm going to start. I would love to hear from both of you, um, what is your seed story? Kristen, if you'd like to go first. Thank you. Sure. Um, thanks, Tiffany. Um, uh, what is my seed story? Uh, when I started my farm, I wanted to grow different, uh, predominantly Korean crops, um, but I didn't even really know that many Korean people, to be honest. And so I just had Kitazawa's um, catalog and it was sort of just this roadmap for me to, to reconnect to my culture. So I pretty much just went through the catalog and anything that said it was a Korean vegetable, I bought seeds for and I planted it on my farm. Um, and then, you know, before even that my first season was over, different people in my area had found out I was growing Korean crops. Um, and so a lot of other Korean Americans just started sharing a lot of seeds with me and telling their stories as part of that. Um, so it was just really incredible to kind of see how quickly people were so responsive and asking, uh, oh, can you grow this? Like I've had these seeds for my grandma. I don't really have a garden space, but I really wish I could taste this, you know, plant again. Um, so it just, I guess hearing people's experiences just really conveyed to me kind of how special that bond is for a lot of people in terms of, uh, being able to maintain their relationships with these plants that, uh, have just traveled with them as they've migrated uh, to lots of different places. And Tiffany, you said we only have an hour, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. The uh, um, It's so difficult to, um, I guess, sort of encapsulate my seed story. Um, there's, uh, I've always had a connection to some of our foods as I was growing up um, throughout my entire life. And after I went to school to learn how to become a farmer, the seeds found me. Um, and it was the, you know, sometimes it's those grandmothers who weren't able to continue to grow on their own or people who didn't have the space to grow. Um, and um, of course, receiving handfuls of different seeds uh, to be able to grow um, anywhere I could find land um, was a challenge. And I think Kristen can probably um, relate to this is that fear of not being the one to mess it up either. Um, so many of our indigenous seeds are not available for purchase at a garden store. So um, it was, you know, with the help of my human mentors and then of course the seed mentors to help continue to teach me how to take care of them. Um, and that's where I'm at today. Nice. Can you, uh, give us a brief overview of the state of seed saving today. You know, you had mentioned like some of the seeds are not grown or that you cannot like buy them at a garden center. Um, so yeah, if you could give us a brief overview of what the seed, the state of seed saving is. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that to some extent, like a strategy for preserving biodiversity has been, you know, what's called ex situ, which is to kind of put it under an iceberg somewhere and kind of frame it as this doomsday vault that will access when, you know, things get bad. And uh, it's just a very strange logic um, because those seeds aren't, you know, growing with their people. Um, They're not evolving season after season. And so I think there's been such a push to acknowledge the shortcomings of that being kind of this strategy that's been employed. Um, And so to recognize not only the importance of seeds growing in real time and becoming regionally adapted and being preserved alongside all of their respective histories. um, But I think too, you know, there's also this form of XC2 where it's the seeds have been really um, divorced from, or people have been really dispossessed of their own seed resources because of just lots of things like from colonization of their lands, uh, just neoliberalism and trade. Um, and so I think that that's kind of interesting as well, just in terms of even kind of more community-based seed efforts. Like I think a lot of times like don't acknowledge, um, a more decentralized participation that's needed. And, you know, there's like, we're partnering with Seed Savers Exchange right now because they have tons of seeds that have been collected from all over Asia, whether through the U.S. government um, or from people. Like the only description we get sometimes is like, you know, maybe a mangled phonetic attempt at pronouncing a name. And then it says, oh, so-and-so got this on vacation while they were in South Asia. Um, And so it just really decontextualizes a lot of these crops. And I think that that context and that love and those actual like whole relationships are also really necessary to not just treat seeds uh, in terms of just the genetic resource and think about their biology in relationship to its environment, but really to know that seeds um, and people really evolve together and need to continue to evolve together just because there can be just so many glaring uh, gaps in terms of just uh, what happens when we don't know how to hold that with all of its personality and all of their unique kind of traits and nuance. Um, So for me, it's like, oh, when I started my farm, I got seeds that just said, oh, it's Korean soybean. I thought, that's great. I want to grow the Korean variety of soybean. And when I went to Korea and visited farmers there, you know, I come to find out there's actually thousands of Korean soybeans. Korea is one of the sort of centers of genetic diversity for soy. Um, And so it's just like, oh, there's this disconnect. There's a pressure for farmers as U.S. soy is being imported at cheaper prices into the Korean market. Um, And when you look, you know, in the early 1900s, there were multiple expeditions to East Asia to collect soy. And of the 7,000 accessions that were taken from Asia and banked with the USDA, you know, the North American gene pool of all of the soy grown here and then exported to places like, you know, the Amazon is derived of only 19 land races of soy. And so we've winnowed out enormous amounts of diversity for this kind of utilitarian take of just to a lot of people, soy is just a, you know, little bundle of protein and crude oil Um, And they're not the people that know which beans are for tofu and which beans are for panchan and which beans are, you know, for preserving. And so I think that it's just to say um, when we think about this idea of in situ, we need to also hold it. um, Yeah. In a more kind of loving right relationship. I know some of the struggles. um, There's definitely a lot of parallels um, between between our seed work cross-culturally. You know, we've 
um, as Native people and specifically my tribe or the Ho-Chunk Nation, the formerly the Wisconsin Winnebago, we were moved from what is now known as Wisconsin to Iowa, to Minnesota, to South Dakota, and then down to Nebraska. And during each of those removals, um, our seeds continued to travel um, along with my ancestors. And those seeds, you know, some of my ancestors continued to find their way back to Wisconsin. Um, and so I come, uh, I carry in my blood those ancestors who continued to evade uh, the U.S. Army and other um, other groups that were trying to move them westward into um, different environments uh, away from our homeland. Um, what I see is the biggest struggle is that there's not enough people doing this work. Um, you know, if we think even 100 years ago, um, 150 years ago, we all depended on saving our own seed, growing our own gardens, um, and not only as a community, but um, even that village concept of, you know, it's what's mine is ours. Um, and it was taking care of one another. Um, there's been so much that, um, you know, so much colonization over time that has changed everyone to, to think that whatever it is that they're growing or taking care of belongs only to them. Um, and if somebody's willing to pay uh pay a dollar or pay whatever, um, then they're allowed to have access to that. Um, my perspective on our indigenous seeds is that they're priceless. Um, I couldn't ever put a price tag on them because that's not, uh, that's not what they are here to teach us. Um, they're here to, you know, as long as they've nourished my ancestors, we hope that we continue to grow them so that they're nourishing our next generations too. Um, and of course, we can only do that if we're growing them every single year. Um, or maybe they take a year off because someone else needs to come in, come in line um, and, and get their year in the sun. But um, it's trying to change our frame of mind, um, change our colonized way of thinking to get back to exactly how our ancestors intended for seeds to be used. Um, not commodified, um, but something for the people and for um, for a collective future. Um, I wish that there were more people, um, and I, I think that's why I get so much hope uh, working at Dream of Wild Health is because we're training the next generation of people to pick up this work, uh, to be our replacements and continue to carry it on to the future. Um, you know, it's it's also looking at it as I'm training my replacement. So that way I'm, I'm training myself out of a job. Um, I want all of them to continue to pick up, um, pick up and learn. So they are far better than me um, at my age um, and hopefully younger than that. Um, and so that's what helps me in the garden or motivates me to continue to do this work is that it's all for them. Um, it's all for the ones that we've never met before and we probably won't ever meet. Um, and I think that's that's what's so important um, for seed saving. Thank you, Jessica. Um, Kristen, you do some like you do work around training people um, to uh, knowing how to seed save. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I. Like what Jessica said, I completely agree with where you just sort of see it as like my goal is to render myself obsolete at some point and to just sort of like 
yeah, keep fostering like more and more people's love of seeds. Um, I mean, we started a program uh, called Seed Stewards, and that's just meant to kind of address this nature of like how we form a more decentralized and participatory kind of seed community and how we engage people that, you know, everyone from growers to just aunties and community members um, to just say like whether or not you have any interest in physically growing that seed, like every one of us needs to have some investment in the, you know, nurturing that seed uh, in all of these different senses. And so, um, yeah, we work with a cohort of farmers and each farmer kind of highlights a crop that they just really couldn't live without. And we try to showcase a lot of the diversity within that because I think, um, as Jessica said too, you know, there's this kind of colonization of the mind and there's this winnowing out as much of genetic diversity. There's also just the reduction of communities to being this sort of monolith. Um, and so I think, you know, even for a relatively small country like Korea, there's so much variation actually in so many different perspectives. Um, and we just want to kind of show that those perspectives really shaped like and fostered biodiversity at some point. And now that we're on this reverse trend of, of taking out a lot of that biodiversity, you know, we can't kind of work towards, you know, uh, rematriating all of that uh, unless we really engage as many people as possible. Um, so just asking ourselves like, yeah, what is the difference between like Korean moo, our type of radish to, versus Japanese daikon? Like they get kind of conflated into one thing, but actually when you think about the different traditions that used radish, uh, you know, there's lots of really interesting traits. And if you think about how those culinary traits translate to lots of interacting gene bundles, uh, you know, to keep that culinary diversity um, is really integral to also kind of maintaining the seed in this really vigorous form. And yeah, we just love, I mean, especially we work with kids and kids do these community and family interviews for each of the crops. And we just get so many kind of amazing responses. And, you know, at the beginning of the season, we ask people to just submit a video of like what seeds mean to them. And it's just like with that little prompt, like they, all these young people just said the most incredible things. And I feel like that's the most kind of like hope heartening thing is to just see like younger generations that really are just going to exist in that completely different cosmology. It's not about decolonizing. It's just about like living in a world where, yeah, we're all liberated and, you know, like our minds are really free of this strange system that we've imposed on so many communities. Um, so we've mentioned diversity and biodiversity a couple of times now. And at Eco Farm last year, Kristen, you said survival comes from being one of many. Um, and can you, can both of you talk to us about the link between diversity and our resiliency or ability to withstand a climate crisis? Uh, Jessica, if you'd like to go first. Well, I think of... Um you know, depending on where you come in the world and what your cultural beliefs are um, or religion or spirituality, we all have an understanding of the order of things um, when things came to the earth um, and we were the last ones to come. Um, and so we have so many other older brothers and sisters that came to this earth before we did or were created before us. Um, and one of those were the plants. Um, you know, we just the three of us. We are three human beings, but we are all completely different. Uh, we look different. Um, maybe we walk differently. We speak different languages. We we speak differently. Um, 
there is probably very few things we can find more differences in one another than we can find similarities. Um, and that's exactly what our seeds um, show us that diversity. Um, you know, I have, I don't have one favorite seed that I grow um, because as a mother, you can't have a favorite child. So, you know, thinking about our seeds, it's like um, when I'm growing with corn, um, husking those corn, uh, each of those husks, um, those cobs back, it's like Christmas morning. You know, it's like you're a kid and you got exactly what Santa said that he was going to bring you um, because you were on your best behavior. But even though it's the exact same variety, there's so many differences in it. Um, and there are so many different colors and um, the smell of the silk um, or the smell of the husk, you know, thinking about all of those different things. And, you know, in the aspect of plant health, you're looking at the plants and knowing that yes, it's all the same variety. And yes, they grew in all the same type of conditions, but sometimes there's one that just doesn't thrive as well as another. Um, and, you know, some people call it roguing out and, and letting, them, letting the plant go or, or taking the plant out so you don't have those genetics cross. But the biodiversity, they kind of, the corn, uh, for example, will take care of one another in that way. Um, and continue to make it stronger by just uh, just watching them sort of weed out one another as well. Um, and, you know, like that's, I think of a pyramid that I am not at the top of. You know, there's so many different um, scopes that human beings have said like, oh, we're better than this or higher than this, or we have a higher intelligence level than this but it is all completely wrong. Um, and it's about flipping our perspective to understand that we are the ones that are here to learn um, from our plants and wildlife relatives. But, um, you know, I think of, I think of that. Um, something that's one of my strengths is maybe someone else's weakness and we're able to balance out one another um, just like our plant relatives do. Um, but it's, uh, I know I've gotten way off track, Tiffany. Um, I just get, I got a little excited, too excited talking about corn, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's such a beautiful, a beautiful part of, uh, a part of, especially this time of year, um, to be in the garden and just to be a student and listen and try to learn as much as we possibly can. Nice. Thank you. I feel like what corn is to you, soybean is to Kristen. <laughs> Um, I loved hearing all of that. No need to apologize. Kristen, do you have something or anything to follow up with? Yeah, I mean, I love what Jessica was saying about just how you can see like all these distinct personalities, even within like one variety of a crop you're growing. It's like one seed might come up and just you're like, wow, this seed's got something going on. And I mean, like Tiffany, I sent you that picture of the bitter melon germinating and it just was like the most flamboyant entrance I had ever seen. And it just like stopped me in my tracks in my greenhouse to be like, whoa, this, this little one is really something to kind of say. And you said, oh, she knows how to make an entrance. And it's like, yeah, it's just sort of like, they have such personality. Um, and I think that, you know, that diversity is really important because as we're sort of seeing like all of this chaos engulfing us in terms of just like all of this unpredictable climate chaos. Um, you know, for me, it's like, we're pretty 
you know, across the board, really concerned with heat and drought, but we're getting still so many flare-ups. We'll get late frost in the spring, or we'll have like an unseasonably wet May where all of our rain just comes in two weeks, basically. Um, And I think that, yeah, there's just been that kind of like industrial mindset about identifying what genes, uh, you know, are responsible for drought tolerance or heat tolerance, but it makes this shortcoming because it's not about like all of these things interacting together. It's not about, yeah, like Jessica saying this kind of like incredible intelligence that seeds and plants have in terms of how they equip that next generation to kind of deal with that, uh, you know, real precarity. And so I think it's just, yeah, these types of community seed systems are just so much more sound and so much more, uh, flexible and adaptive because there's just so much complexity that we can't understand. And yeah, Jessica is entirely right. Like there is, you know, no world where it makes sense that we are at the top of that pyramid. Like if anyone spends enough time with plants, you just kind of bow down in humility at, at the intelligence that you get to see expressed. Um, And so I think it's just, yeah, trying to be open and learning from that and knowing that you know, we're making these observations as best we can and living in relationship, but, you know, really there's just so many, you know, interesting things working in concert and so much that they know and that they're kind of shifting and adapting to that. Yeah. We should just be kind of following their lead. So this event is called, right. Um, seed saving, preserving culture and building resilience. And I'm curious, and both of you have sort of mentioned this, but what are the ways in which um, you've been disconnected from culture and then how do seeds kind of bring you back to it? Um, I know Kristen mentioned her partnership with Seed Savers Exchange. Um, we also have one uh, as the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and uh, we're rematriating um, Indigenous seeds out of the Seed Savers Exchange collection um, and having Native growers grow them again to rematriate those seeds and give them back to their mother communities. Um, I was very grateful um, a few years ago to be reconnected with one of my ancestral seeds. Um, And for a little bit of a backstory, um, all of my life, I always knew that we had to have Hubbard squash at some of our ceremonies. And so I just assumed that um, that was a a Ho-Chunk variety of squash. And, while uh, some of the seeds started finding me, I too was looking for them. And there was one squash that was in the Oscar Will seed collection back in the early 1900s. And it talked about this 27 pound um, oblong shaped squash. And I thought, wow, that is such a beautiful squash. It's of course a black and white photo. Um, but I just continued to struggle to find the seed for it or to find anybody who was continuing to steward that seed over time. And there was a small little note made um, within uh, within the note section of this particular squash called the American Indian squash that was grown by Seed Savers. And somebody who grew it in the 1980s said, is this the Oscar Will Winnebago seed? And I was able to, um, from my... Uh, seed sister and mentor, Rowan White, um, she was able to gift me some of that seed and I've been able to grow it again um, and maybe not grow it, but grow with it um, for the last few years. But that squash made um, made its entrance at one of our ceremonies and all I did was cut it in half, um, scooped out the seeds, 
wrapped it again and just put it in the fire to fire roast it. And as soon as people had a taste of it, they're like, what did you put in the squash? And I'm like, absolutely nothing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, nothing. Um, Nothing but love, I guess. Um, But that was tasting that squash. It not only nourished, nourished our physical selves, but you could feel a nourishment of your spirit. There was like this wholeness that came over you. Um, And feeling that again, I hope to help other people reconnect the same way Um, because those plant relatives were so much a part of our ceremonies for so long. And within the last hundred years, uh, they were taken away. Um, You know, this was the same parallel during this time uh, when our seeds were being pulled away from us was when the children of my ancestors were being pulled to go into different boarding schools. Um, And there's several atrocities uh, that happened during that time, but our seeds, I'm going to try not to cry. Um, Our seeds went through that same atrocity. Um, They were made to put, um, to be grown by someone else. Um, or to be locked into a jar and sit in a cabinet um, because at that point in time, the U.S. government thought that Native people would be extinct. Um, So it was about trying to collect as much as they possibly could from us. And being reconnected with those seeds now, like they still have that memory too. Um, That memory and that intergenerational trauma even within, uh, within their endosperm that we're able to come together and heal together now um, and really crossing that bridge into intergenerational wisdom and being able to being able to just be together again Um, you know it's it's like growing up about you know with a story about uncle bob and you never met uncle bob maybe you saw a picture of them once and one day when you're an adult uncle bob comes home And you knew that Uncle Bob was halfway around the world living his best life. Um, But there's so much that you've missed out of each other's life. Um, You know, that you're both okay um, and that you both made it. But it's about that that time in the garden with them growing in the earth is that time that you're able to learn and say, this is where I've been, um, but this is where we're going. And um, it's such a it's such a beautiful project to be a part of. Um, And I hope that, yeah, I hope that gives people hope. You know, it's don't let anybody tell you that you can't connect to your ancestral seeds because they're out there. They're waiting for us to be ready for them to come home. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and Tiffany Patton. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, what Jessica just expressed um, reminds me of this Korean uh, kind of idea called Tongil, which is reunification. Uh, and it's this aspiration and dream and hope of, uh, you know, the physical reunification of the Korean peninsula, um, but also of all the peoples that have spread through so many places because of war and various successions of occupation of the peninsula and colonization. Um, And so I think, yeah, just kind of like that power of 
of how plants really play a role in that. Like, I think the spirit of Tongil is always perilla for me of kinnip. And, you know, it's just this plant that, um, you know, Jessica said, like the squash found her. And I think perilla is a plant that I always say, like, I don't really know uh, how I found them, but they definitely kind of remembered me before I was able to remember them. And it's just that sort of good fortune of, um, yeah, just meeting them at a certain point of life. Um, and just all the doorways, like all the stories that it helped me access. And it's definitely the plant that you can just see people be transported as soon as they get a whiff of it, as soon as, you know, like the appearance of them, uh, just makes people completely light up. Um, and so I just think of like the power in that to just sort of, and I think about too, like that's a crop that feels like people, you know, Korean people just feel like it's distinctly ours. Like we've asked like lots of elders, like, Oh, what is, could you describe the taste of kidney for someone who maybe hasn't had it? And they say, Oh yeah, it's um, just tastes really Korean. And it's like, that's not a description, you know, but like it completely makes sense to people. Like, and that's, you know, this kind of like complete devotion to them. Um, and so I think there's just such a beauty in that. And I think too, it's just sort of like, we also see in like the plants that we really have this reverence for, like it also embodies a lot of the spirit of like our communities. It's like, you know, this ability to adapt and to thrive and just be strong, um, their potent medicine and their nourishing foods. And I think it just is, um, yeah, just something that just is, just a really complete medicine for the spirit just to kind of be able to keep our relationships with these plants um, during these times of uncertainty. And yeah, in the first few years, like that was one crop that so many people just gave me seeds for because it was the seed that everyone had tucked away in a dresser somewhere. It was the seed that everybody sort of brought because there's just no substitute for it either. And so it's just sort of like, if you, if you long for them, there's just no one else that will kind of cut it uh, to substitute. And so, yeah, I think it is just really powerful. And I think that there's just so many invitations for all of us. And I think for me, it's just, I can just testify to the fact that I think, yeah, everyone is able to like find those connections. And for me, I just had to, you know, look up and pay attention because I think those uh, relations are really kind of seeking you out uh, as much as you're maybe longing for them. I have the pleasure of living uh, within the same general region as Kristen. And so I've been able to visit the farm. And I think the first time I went, I'm Korean and black. Um, um, am I going to cry? Probably. I was already crying. Anyway, so the first time I went to the farm, it was just really great to see these Korean crops growing. I've never seen that before. I've only ever seen like Korean vegetables at the Korean market. Um, and that so it helped me to feel connected just to be on that land. And then when you hosted Chisuk Korean Harvest, um, that was one of the first times that I've been able to feel like fully connected to my Korean culture without having any sort of like negativity around it. And so this work that y'all are doing or like is connecting yourself to your culture, but also so many other people. So thank you for that. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> um, as mentioned, the series is called Roots of Resilience in an Age of Crisis. And we have so many crises going on, like environmental ones, um, but also like political ones, social crises. And I'm wondering 
for um, you start with you again, Jessica, like what are some of those, some of those like crises you've faced and how have seeds and your connection to seeds helped you get through them? Um, a very loaded question, Tiffany. Um, so, yeah, I think of I think of the community that I serve now, uh, which is an intertribal, urban Native community of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And you know, there's it's easy for me to preach before I came to Dream of Wild Health that you know people need to be growing their own food, um, even if it's a small potted plant or a, a small windowsill garden. Um, just something to help them connect to the earth and take responsibility back for their own food system. Uh, The biggest challenge that much of the Phillips neighborhood faces is that there was an old arsenic contamination of the soil. um, And so that renders nearly everything there um, too contaminated to be able to grow food. I mean, you could probably grow something, but I wouldn't recommend eating it. Um, and so it's trying to create additional aspects of, for food, uh, and people, you know, there are so many culturally, uh, culturally, a lack of cultural appropriate foods within, uh, the grocery stores within that neighborhood. And that's what I find to be so important for people. Um, I do feel that it's a crisis, you know, a lot of that stems from land access, or a lack of land access of not only indigenous communities, but BIPOC communities in general, um, where we don't have 10 generation farms happening um, or some, you know, we've all been displaced in some way. And, you know, it's about trying to find ways that we can as a community thrive together. Um, And so there's so many different land trusts um, popping up um, or, community growing that's happening, which is beautiful, um, but we're still not addressing how do Indigenous people find Indigenous foods. And, um, you know, I think it's, I I would spend um, every single summer uh, sweating in the garden if it meant there was one other person that could taste that food and get reconnected to it. Because there's a, I apologize of uh, my little babies <laughs> chirping. Uh, they're a week old, so they're trying to celebrate their birthday, I guess. Um, but there's, uh, you know, there's this beautiful, uh, this beautiful awakening that happens when people are able to eat their cultural, cultural and ancestral foods again. Um, and so it's continuing to find creative ways on how we can help help other people uh, reconnect, but also to grow those foods and make that connection and relationship back to the earth. Um, you know, at Dream of Wild Health, we've opened up this brand new, uh, we were blessed, um, extremely blessed, and we're able to purchase another 20 acres of land. And a majority of that land will now get put into um, put into, uh, I don't want to call it trust, but is basically reserved for native growers to have land to to be able to grow their foods on Um, because it's not about our, um, it's all about us collectively taking that responsibility back. Um, We can't or shouldn't depend on someone to grow our food for us. Um, That's something that's in all of our blood, no matter where we came from. Um, and it's something that I hope, even if it is a windowsill garden or container garden, that we all get back 
um, get back going toward um, because I think we can all be creative um, if that's what that's the only way we're going to continue forward as a species. I mean, I think that just the land access is probably just the primary thing kind of facing so many of our communities. And just as Jessica said, like this kind of constant terror that's been rained down on indigenous peoples on this continent um, and just globally. Um, yeah, it's just pretty frightening. Like I think for me in my area, you know, uh, I'm, my farm is situated within like the largest uh, nut exporter uh, possibly in the world. So it's walnuts and almonds. Um, and historically it's been wheat and canning tomatoes. Um, but the impact of putting in like pretty much every piece of ground I see turnover out here is going into almonds basically. Uh, and so it's having this incredible, pretty rapid uh, impact, especially on our watershed. Uh, just because, you know, it's it's a very tragic thing to see because we have seen this kind of come up throughout California's Central Valley uh, as almond orchards are just being pulled and as the land is starting to subside just due to the sort of overdraft of our water. Um, and I think especially in this year, it's been really heartbreaking to see just because, you know, on average, our area gets about 16 to 18 inches of rain. And this past season, we got six inches of rain. Um, and instead of collectively, all of us trying to figure out some austerity measures to kind of maintain it as collaboratively as possible, just in thinking about the long term, uh, you know, quite the opposite is happening in terms of just feeling like we're in this race to the bottom. Uh, and so it's like, you know, we're seeing water salinity issues and real kind of out of balance, uh, you know, boron ex excess and things like that. Um, but it's kind of like with people who have the capital resources, it's like, oh, your water is starting to be toxic. Let's bring the chemical company in and install these giant water treatment, uh, inject sulfuric acid into the um, into your water source, and then all of that gets back into the soil. And so it's just at every turn where we're at this inflection point to, to make a decision that is collectively minded, not just for our human communities, but yeah, for our whole ecosystem. Um, we're just seeing people continually kind of take this really short-sighted, um, just make the money you can while you can essentially strategy. Um, and so I think it's really hard to just to witness, to witness that as this type of just, yeah, real violence against this land. Um, and then to also just think about this sort of like perpetual settler mindset where it's like, well, when this is tapped out, we've still got the rest of the coastline. We're going to just head up to the Pacific Northwest and move all of our intensive vegetable production there. Um, so I don't know where the sort of the buck stops in terms of what we can do um, to really mobilize and stop this. I mean, I think that to your question of like how seeds kind of can boost our spirits within that, because there's not a lot else that's really kind of keeping the spirit afloat when you're watching all of this happen in real time. Um, but I think it just, you do see like with, water quality and things like that, like you just see a completely different type of strategy that plants employ uh, and just that hardiness of just, if you can get even a small population um, to survive, it just really shows something unique about their character and their resilience. Uh, I think 
plant communities just teach us so intrinsically and show us by example of a much more collective mindset uh, in terms of how they weather these stresses. And so I think that that's kind of the hope when it's like, you know, we're the little guys out here and there's not a lot that makes us feel like we have a lot of agency in terms of um, really combating the practices that are really dominant. Um, But it's just trying to think about the ways plants resource us and then we can share that with our community. Uh, Like Jessica said, just having those foods and kind of being able to, you know, have people connect on this visceral level and, and realize how open their hearts can be to have access to these foods. And then just how that shapes accountability. I think it just changes things to think about once you've experienced that and once you're able to kind of like have this restorative process, um, it becomes much more heartbreaking to think about losing that again, right? Like once you remember, you can't forget. Um, And I think that that is what is heartening as well. It's just like those plants connecting all of us, having people come to the farm and be in relationship to the farms. Um, And then, yeah, just, I I think just what that does in terms of people thinking about how to really commit to the places we inhabit and not just move on and not have this perpetual sense of manifest destiny that when we tap these resources, there's always a new horizon. We can desalinize the sea, we can mine the moon, you know, like all of this just bananas thinking. Um, But I think it makes you just think like, I love this land. I love my community and we're going to have to figure out how to ride this out one way or another. That kind of um, just takes us right into the next question. Uh, And Kristen, you kind of already answered it, but if you have another answer for it, please do um, answer again. But uh, what is like one of the most important lessons uh, you've learned from seeds? Jessica, if we can start with you again. I feel like the most important lesson that I've learned from seeds is that every year I'm surprised and I know that as much as I think I know, I don't know anything. Um, You know, I have a good baseline, but there's so many different uh, nuances every single season that even the same variety will continue to teach me something every year. Um, But it's, it's made me, you know, a, a better farmer for it, a better steward of the earth for it. Um, because there's, yeah, there's all those little tiny nuances, that personality that comes out. Um, and not that the seed shows you who's boss, but it, it's kind of like that, but in, in a more gentle way. Um, as long as you're, as long as you're listening and trying to, um, follow their instruction and follow their lead. I think it's just that, like, to be able to really feel like a deep humility is such a gift, you know, like, I think that that is just, yeah, it really, it just shapes the way you interact and treat every other form of life to just really feel like humble in the face of something so sort of divine and mysterious. That's beautiful. Um, But for my last question for you two uh, is, uh, what advice do you have for like burgeoning seed savers? You know, I think um, if I could do this all over again, um, I would find, um, I would do more research on like what my grandmother's grandmother ate um, and sort of start with that. Um, You know, as much as I love corn and I would love for people to experience that uh, Christmas morning feeling during harvest season, it's also 
um, it's not for everybody. Um, or maybe people just don't have the space to grow corn, which is completely fine. Um, a story that I was told was that um, if I grow corn and my non-native friend grows the same corn, it's for them, it's just corn. But when I grow it, it becomes sacred um, because it was with my hands um, or my energy that put that seed um, and asked the earth to take care of it for us uh, and to nurture it. Um, and so I would, I would just encourage everyone to find what their ancestral seeds look like and what they are, um, because I think so many of them have, um, there's nobody there lifting up their voices either, um, because so many of them have been commodified over time. Um, so that, that would be my recommendation. And then, of course, your open pollinated uh, heirloom varieties of seed, too, so you can continue to um, continue to save seed or start your seed saving journey. And it really is easy. Um, if I can figure it out, um, an old army vet, anybody can, um, you just want to take baby steps and don't get too overwhelmed. It's just exactly that. Like, don't, like, I think the seed industry really benefits from making seed feel like this opaque, uh, professionalized sort of arena. Uh, and I, it's surprising always even, to think back on like when I was a farmhand and younger and talking to other farmers even about how intimidating uh, seed saving seems because we trust more, um, you know, the perception of experts to do that and to hold that. Um, and so I think it's just, yeah, you can just start small and just think about the crop that you just can't live without and think about the crop that does kind of strengthen your relationships with the people who you want to feed. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of times people just say like, oh, like, how do you start a new seed resource or something like that? And I think there's so much happening too already and so many things to tap into. Um, and yeah, just remembering like even in urban areas, like there's just still like these avid, you know, seed savers and people who hold all of that seed wisdom. And so I think it just um, for me as someone that tends to like plants more than people, um, I've been really grateful for the ways that plants have kind of pushed me to um, actually connect and build community and just be open and vulnerable with other uh, humans. Um, and so I think, yeah, you can just, it just is like this quick landslide and you just realize how, how strong a community you have when you're coming together in this sort of uh, communion Thank you both for that. We are going to open it up for audience Q&A. So one question that we have from Greg Marsh is, um, he's saying the issues that you're discussing are common and repeated globally. Are you focused on a specific group or collaborating or collaborating globally with those interested in saving seeds? Yeah, thank you for the question, Greg. Um, there is only so many hours in a day. Um, so I know for myself, not only do I work at Dream of Wild Health, um, but my paycheck from my day job helps fund my, uh, my at-home farm. Uh, so, you know, there's only so much we can do. And I think that's why it's so important for other people to um, start working with seed, um, you know, and start being a student of the seeds and steward of the seeds to be able to uh, continue to expand how we can, um, you know, increase capacity as a group um, to be able to tackle more things or to partner on more things. Um, so I would love to, 
if we had some more time during the day. I think obviously like, you know, Jessica and I are both talking about like really fostering community, like in, you know, like kind of these discrete communities. And some of that is just purely internal work. Um, but I, I think right now it's been the most inspiring thing to see, like in the past two years of just like, you know, real scary chaos is, um, just the amount of solidarity building and cross-cultural sharing and just like lots of indigenous and BIPOC communities um, recognizing the ways that we can support one another. And so it's just, um, yeah, again, this really different model instead of just, um, you know, trying to grow out seeds, really divorced from different communities, like there's more of this open kind of sharing. Uh, And so I think it's like this beautiful opportunity and kind of you know, more positive form of, you know, globalism that isn't just focused on continued consolidation. Um, But I see a lot of people just reaching out like Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, Alliance of Native Seed Keepers, uh, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, which focuses on a lot of uh, heirloom varieties important to African-American communities and African diaspora. Um, I think everyone's trying to come out of like these little niches that we're working within uh, and figure out just also in these disparate regions, how we can support growing each other's seed and, and still being sure to make sure those seeds are accountable to their respective communities. But just knowing, you know, I live in a great seed growing region for the moment. Um, and so what can I do in terms of doing seed increases, uh, helping grow out like rare seeds so that uh, we can contribute them back and make sure that communities have them for the long term. And like Jessica's saying, every plant needs their day in the sun. And sometimes on a small scale, especially because of isolation and just practical reasons, you can't grow all the varieties every year. And so having this collaborative approach will just allow us to really, you know, speed up these processes to allow for really bulking up uh, and ensuring some some safety in terms of just, uh, yeah, these seeds that are so precious. So I think, you know, as insular as it can be, it's also really focused on that cross-pollination as well. Uh, We have a question from John, um, first first saying thank you for this presentation. Um, And then his question is, how would you promote the importance of seed saving in low-income, high-trauma urban neighborhoods where there isn't a lot of room to grow food? Well, once upon a time, I worked for my own uh, my own nation's community gardens, and all of those community gardens were placed in our low income communities. So there was an aspect of seed saving, um, and it was, you know, we we definitely focused on the financial aspect of it. Where if you were saving the seed, um, you were spend, essentially sent spent no money um, to be able to continue to grow maybe a particular variety of tomato. Um, or a squash. Um, And so, you know, it's incredibly important. And of course, when I was farming in Philadelphia, essentially there was a small piece of earth that we could possibly put, grow something in, we did. Um, And so, you know, again, maybe it's not directly into the earth, but it is in a raised bed or a container garden. Like there's, Land shouldn't hold any of us back from having a relationship to the earth and a relationship to the food that we're uh, consuming as a family. There's ways too for 
there to just be unique opportunities to bridge that rural and urban divide too. And I think especially in the realm of environmental justice, sometimes those communities are really pitted against each other in terms of what the challenges are facing our respective communities and how we frame solutions, especially on a policy level. Um, So I think that Yeah, where land is really hard to come by, where land is not contaminated because of industrial uses and, you know, environmental violence towards communities. Uh, It's just great impetus to reach out and for farmers like me who are in rural areas to to be really deliberate with who we want to build community with, whose communities we're trying to sustain and really lift up. Um, So I think, yeah, there's a lot of ways to just kind of bridge that. Um, And yeah, just even with encouraging people to think of their own seed stories and, you know, all of our CSA, they're all based in, in urban areas. Um, but I think just having them come up to the farm and then also just having them really have these robust conversations, like in their families and their schools with their peers, um, you know, is a really integral part of seed saving. And so the physical space and the physical resource of the seed, you know, can be in a constellation of lots of other ways of feeling invested and like you're an actor in that change. Uh, so just thinking about all the ways we can have different apparatus to, to lift up people's feelings of excitement and inclusion in that um, doesn't have to just solely be limited by whether you have access to the physical space or not. Like everybody can really just, um, you know, be in love with seeds and see themselves participating in that. Um, We have a question um, from someone who is currently working on a few grants that promote agriculture as a career, um, primarily with a Native American community, youth and adults who are beginning farmers or ranchers. And um, their question is, do you have any advice on anything? (laughs) I know it's pretty vague, but uh, this person's creating the program from scratch through any sport they can find. And is just wondering if there is some advice that you have. Yeah, a great question. I apologize. I don't know what community you're from, um, but the Fond du Lac Nation of Minnesota has a really good emerging farmer program. Um, so they have um, they have a program, and they're very um, they're very helpful with um, with any questions you might have and ways to help shape um, shape what you're trying to do. Um, there's also like the Bad River. Uh, community in Wisconsin, the Lacouturay tribe of uh, Wisconsin as well. I'm sorry, I'm only busting out uh, upper Midwest nations, um, but it's beautiful to see some of that work. Um, again, with Fond du Lac, they have a very good relationship with HO, um, AICHO of Duluth, um, who's really trying to help lift up farmers and producers um, of all scales. So that way we can create more food access for indigenous communities. Um, So that would be, those would be my go-to places um, to check with them and see how they can help shape um, or maybe even um, give you some more behind the scenes look so you're not recreating the wheel. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and Tiffany Patton. Yeah, I know um, Intertribal Ag Link as well can help bridge some of uh, capital infrastructure and things like that. Um, And I mean, I guess I would say, too, like in this realm of supporting the next generation of farmers, there's a lot of resourcing on the front end of aspiring farmers and how to kind of uh, incubate or launch a farm business. Um, But there's there's a distinct gap in 
that inflection point when you're five years old, you're five seasons in, and you really start to think about where the rubber hits the road in a certain way of, is this actually viable as a livelihood? You know, whether or not you can grow stuff for the rest of your life, like is farming actually the way that you're going to support yourself and your family? Um, And I think that that's sometimes just this hard place. And we don't look at the actual success rate beyond those five years and multi-generational farming businesses and things like that. And so I, I would encourage you to just think about that as a framework because, you know, it's, it's one thing to help someone get off the ground, but it's another to really sustain that flight. And I think that that's the real challenge right now, um, especially because again, like land access, we focus a lot on just connecting prospective farmers with landowners. Um, but we don't acknowledge the fact, like for me as a tenant farmer, I can tell you the people that are coming forward with possible leases on their land or turnkey operations, um, they're not starting you off on like the best piece of their land. They're not like, let me give you the most productive little acre that I can cut out of my production. They're giving you the weed patch. They're giving you the place that's got a lot of problems. They're giving you the piece that was untenable to manage as they kind of scaled back. Um, so you have to just think about the runway to actually, you know, just the risk that's being incurred when you start a farm, um, and collectively how to really shoulder some of that risk and how to distribute the burden of that risk. Um, and just think about, yeah, getting through the first five years, you're probably just getting through on pure adrenaline and excitement that you get to have your farm. Uh, and then after that, you're just, it's tons of hard questions and hard contemplation. And so I think I just encourage, um, you know, people who are thinking about organizing with with farmers and thinking about uh, this question of, of who the farmers of the future are. We have to really think about when things get hard and not just launching hundreds of farmers out there. And then, you know, by decades end, we've got like less than 10 percent of those folks still farming uh, and oftentimes like incurring debt and things that could be quite predatory, especially for, you know, different disadvantaged communities. So. That's reminding me of something uh, this farmer in Portland, Oregon said. Uh, her name is Shiny Flannery, um, but they said access without support isn't an opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, just to recap what you said, like actually doing things, building the infrastructure to support people beyond the initial, the initial like jump. Um, let's see. We have a question from Ron uh, who's asking, it's a two-part question. Is it more advisable to get seeds from others, like engaging in like a person-to-person seed exchange or to get them like from mail order? And if you like advise mail order, then where are some places where they can get legitimate heirloom seeds? Good question, Ron. Um, I, I've learned my lesson the hard way by taking seed from strangers <laughs> where uh, they've told me that it's one particular variety I grow it and it's something else. Um, and so there's, there's that. I think if you have a trusted friend um, or somebody, a neighbor that you're both tag teaming different crops um, and sharing in the harvest or something um, where you're both fully aware of the uh, seed that you're growing I think that's great. Um, I would encourage you to share some with somebody who's um, who's already established or is already practicing. Um, again, I can't say enough good things about Seed Savers Exchange. Um, there are other places. So I apologize, I'm not lifting them up either. But um, Seed Savers does such great work. Um, you know, rematriation work with not only Indigenous community but um, other communities of color. So um, I would definitely check them out. 
And I think uh, as much as being the recipient of a seed that's being handed to you by a person and that's usually has some sort of anecdote accompanying it, like can, you know, like do something in terms of saying like, oh, wow, you trust me enough to grow this. And it changes how you kind of initially maybe take care of it. Like anyone who shared a seed with me, it feels like such a responsibility. And so I definitely baby those plants a lot um, and try to just make sure they get to the field successfully. But again, uh, yeah, it can be sketchy sometimes. And I think especially receiving a lot of seeds from different elders, like, uh, you know, you hear a lot of things where you're like, is this true, you know, like, or is this just kind of like a really entertaining, um, true to you story. Uh, and so trying to parse out like the different things uh, can be complicated. Um, but yeah, again, like a big fan of Seed Savers Exchange, just because I do think like they've acknowledged uh, what gaps there have been and how they've stewarded seed, how they've been the recipients and a clearinghouse of these seeds and are really actively trying to address it in a way that I don't see a lot of other um, places that focus on heirloom seeds necessarily doing. Uh, and I think that there is a company in particular that I will say is not good. Um, and they're a huge purveyor of what they call heirloom seeds, but a lot of it is just taken in this way that lacks consent from different communities. There's a way that they're taking seeds that have explicitly been said by indigenous communities is not for commercial sale. And as Jessica said, like some of these, there are relations and there for a lot of our various communities, there's no price you can put on it. And so for a commercial seed entity to decide that they just get to make that call. Um, yeah, is another form of just perpetuating like this colonial violence. And so I would just say, um, without naming names, but I'll just say, you know, just be cautious and be thoughtful in terms of if you see this kind of robust collection uh, and you read in the description, it's a little sketchy or you get this vague sense like someone saying, I collected this in. Um, you know, in Africa, and it maybe it's an ornamental or maybe it's edible. Maybe you shouldn't buy those seeds because clearly they know nothing about the context for it. Um, and so just thinking about through this commerce and that idea of voting with your dollar, like, is that the seed system we want to uphold? Like something that continues to be extractive uh, and kind of profit people that have really no responsibility to, um, to who stewarded and shaped those seed varieties. Um, do you have any examples of how youth have organized to create seed saving within urban and or rural communities? Uh, yeah, so at Dream of Wild Health, um, you know, we have our, not only our core is kids who, that's our 8 to 12 year old youth. Um, and then our Garden Warriors is the 13 to 18 year old youth. Um, the youth have you know, they start off knowing that each of those seeds are their relative. Um, one of the first activities that we do is um, have each child, uh, each youth hold one of their particular ancestral seeds. Um, and so I just let them hold them in their hand um, while we're talking about seed um, and not necessarily thinking of it as a seed vault, but a seed sanctuary where seeds can come and go as they, as they wish. Um, and we're just there to help them. So, you know, I think our youth are given that different perspective on things. Um, and so last year amid the, amidst the pandemic, you know, there were so many of us who didn't know where we were going, what the grocery store situation would look like for people. Um, 
And so we ended up amping up our production. Um, you know, I, I definitely regret it now. <laughs> I'm grateful everything turned out. Um, but we really amped up our production because we were concerned about our community and how they were going to be able to access food. Um, during that time, we also made sure that we shared seed with our youth. Um, so all of our youth participants, if they needed a raised bed kit, we made them one. Um, we shared seed with them. And what was so beautiful, um, because we were able to still have our programming last year, um, just not at our usual capacity, so many of those youth, um, it was like they were talking about their kid. Um, you know, they're like, Jessica, my bean did this. And like, my mom's stevia started crawling over. Um, and it was so beautiful because there were so many of them that really took that opportunity to uh, use that use that opportunity to grow. Um, and they all really enjoyed it um, or genuinely enjoyed it. Um, so there were many of them that came with, um, you know, some of their cured squash seeds last fall of something that they grew in the garden, thinking that if we needed their help, um, we could take some of the seed that they brought back and give it back to the community if there were people in need. Um, and so, you know, it's not, um, you know, it wasn't 100% participation. Some of the youth just ate the food and that's okay. That's what it's there for. Um, but those little, those little ones that you're like, I know they're going to work with seed. Um, those were the ones who came uh, to bring seed and give seed back. I think uh, young people are playing such an instrumental role. And I think um, it's one of the big pressures. Like I know when I was with farmers in Korea, it was just sort of seen as like the generation that's really holding things down for preserving indigenous varieties, for preserving these really adaptive land races and biodiversity uh, is, you know, it's 70 years old plus. Um, and then I think because of the spread of the green revolution, its whole paradigm and its resources, um, you know, from like the nineties to today, we had a generation sort of drop out of stewarding that because of the promise and the pressure of, uh, this other type of agriculture. And so I think now it's like this return to it that's super important and about kind of bridging that gap. Um, so I know it's a ton of pressure just because people realize like, who's going, who am I going to leave the seed collection to? Who am I going to know? Like we have a couple years of working together so that, I, you know, this wisdom can be imparted. Um, yeah, it's a lot of responsibility. I think a lot of communities are feeling so stressed about, you know, how to really, um, work on this timeline, given how much pressure we're all facing. Um, and similarly, I think just through our seed stewards program, it's like just the amazing things of seeing kids kind of interact and yeah, just talk about, it's just really heartening to like see kids talk about plants at, with this personhood attached. Um, and they never call plants just it or refer to it as if it's just the subject of something like it's really just treated so lovingly. Um, and I think it also has a bearing in terms of just encouraging um, and, you know, offering this remembering of, you know, healthy eating is our inheritance, actually. And I think there's a lot of skewed public health discourse that kind of blames communities of color for health disparities that we see in our communities and different health ailments that show up. Um, 
And I think that, yeah, this kind of whole reconnection to plants, like just lets people realize like, no, our people know how to live healthy. The things that have impacted us uh, and caused these health disparities are more a product of this, these different types of um, militarism and war and colonization. Um, the things that just really actively have sought to make our communities unhealthy. And so I think just offering young people that of just like, no, the story isn't that, you know, we need Western doctors to tell you what a healthy plate of food looks like, or you need to all embrace Lausanato kale because it's the superfood um, is really untrue. And I think that through sharing our seed stories, like we've just seen like, you know, families getting our CSA box, the big feedback was like, you know, preparing food is like a joyous act again, you know, like we've headed down this path of just efficiency. And so, you know, we have, you know, aggregated produce boxes that your vegetables are cut up for you and meal boxes and things that are just focused on making mealtime as like, yeah, as efficient as possible. And to have something that goes in the face of that to say, no, you're going to have to take time. And we're actually going to ask for more time because we want to prompt you into these conversations, but it makes mealtime actually an active communion again, where we're talking and we're laughing and we're creating these memories associated with food uh, goes a long way in terms of shifting those patterns. And my biggest accomplishment, if I died tomorrow, was that all these kids under 10 years old loved bitter melon last year because they heard all of these stories and all of these anecdotes and they saw all these people in their community, whether they grew up with it or not. Uh, just talking about how much they loved bitter melon. And so a lot of the parents in our group just said, you know, if we got a standard CSA box and it was something that, you know, it was just hard to get our kids to eat, we'd probably just compost it, honestly. And I think because we held it in this kind of communal fashion and we wrapped them with these stories, um, there was just more incentive, like, okay, you try it one bite. Uh, I don't really like it. It's a strong flavor. I'm not familiar with it. But you get all these recipes and how to prepare it correctly. And then suddenly we had parents being like, you know what? I had to go to the store and get more bitter melon because my kids are asking for it for like the third night in a row. Um, and so, yeah, I just think like these relationships mean so much in terms of just like really strengthening our communities, like spiritually and physically. So we have time for one last question. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it, but basically... Uh, this person is noting that how we are all connected and have commonalities, uh, no matter what our culture is. And they're wondering from you, uh, how can we come together to find and or create healing and peacemaking opportunities for more of this, like uh, for across like different cultures? I think um, food is the perfect vessel for that because I think it allows for those differences. It allows for really different kind of ideas of what's delicious, what your preferences are in terms of all of these different things. Um, like chili peppers is the example I use because people are so devoted to their variety of chili pepper and you'll get so heated, you know, pun partially intended about, you know, like why no other pepper will do. Koreans do not want to use any non-Korean pepper to make kimchi or gochujang. Um, and so why is there such a devotion? But as much as it can lead to this kind of friendly competition, there's always that look of recognition of just like respect, like, okay, you love your chili pepper and I love mine. And we just still find common ground within that, whether or not we're going to grow and eat each other's chili pepper. I think that devotion and that, that love really transcends the difference. So I think it's just, it is just one of these unique opportunities to 
um, not think that finding common ground is about erasing or dulling those differences, but really embracing those and respecting them. Um, and just knowing that if I feel this strongly about my chili pepper, I want to make sure you have as many opportunities to like grow your chili pepper because I know how much it means. Like it just shifts everything to just think about that sort of mutual respect. I definitely agree uh, with what Kristen said. Um, I think, I think for all of us, you know, whether you have um, a child that is, um, you know, genetically yours or, or one that you take care of or a niece, nephew, um, a neighbor's child, if there's any young person that's around your life and you can look them in the eye and tell them that they're inheriting the best um, possible earth they could and believe it, um, I think that's what needs to bring us together. Um, thinking about how we all need to do better, um, regardless of where we're at. Um, that's what, that's, what's going to help us all go on. It's not about me just saving indigenous people and, you know, only focused on indigenous communities. It's about, um, all of us being able to, um, speak for those who can't speak for themselves. Um, and also know that we did the very best that we could, um, and maybe it's not farming a hundred acres or or a small ten by ten garden in your in your backyard, but it's it's about any type of way you can participate. Um, and maybe that's a working on a beach cleanup or um, all these little acts of kindness that help take care of our Mother Earth. Um, that's how we can all come together and heal because we all have healing to do as humans. Um, we've all been, um, you know, naughty children. Um, we always, we haven't all treated our mother with the most respect that we should have. Um, but it's not too late. Um, we have time to change, um, with just starting with that one act, one act and one step forward. Thank you. That was a great note to end this on. Um, I want to say thank you again for joining us. And Kristen and Jessica, thank you so much for your like willingness and vulnerability and just for being you and for doing the work that you do. Really appreciate you both. Yes. And I will thank you as well. Um, I'm an herbalist and I, I just have such a soft spot for plants and seeds. And I loved hearing you talk about your plants and their stories and their personalities. So thank you guys for honoring them and for bringing us all together. And thanks to all of you who've joined us here in this virtual space. Uh, if you haven't signed up for the last event in this series, that will happen on June 18th. And you can do that at tns.commonweal.org. Again, we'll have recordings produced of this conversation. And please consider making a donation to help Real Foods Media and to help the new school keep these programs coming. Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and Tiffany Patton, thanks for being with us at the new school at Commonweal. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Kristen Leach, Jessica Greendeer, and host Tiffany Patton, co-presented with Real Food Media. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. 
Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.